Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tanya Dominguez, an inspector for the RSPCA in Australia, where I ask, how are you rescuing the animals in Australia? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited to welcome this week's guest, Tanya Dominguez. You are a inspector for the RSPCA. Yes, I am. Okay. So we think we are very lucky to have a lot of Australian listeners. I think we're very lucky to have a lot of American listeners and people all over. But for those folks who don't know what the RSPCA is. Well, the RSPCA, we're we're a charity. We're a non-for-profit charity um, in Australia. Um, It stands for the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, And in New South Wales, we have um, a number of shelters, um, a number of veterinary clinics, um, and we have an inspectorate. Um, And I'm from the Law Enforcement Division of the RSPCA. Law Enforcement Division of the RSPCA. And then what was that piece of the sentence you said right before an inspectorate? Like, or what did you say? Oh, it could have just been like an accident. I just, I was like, what's that mean? I love to ask. Like the, the RCCA has like a, like, and because what we have a law enforcement division. Yes. But yeah. you're also an inspector. Yes, I am an RSPCA inspector. Yes. yes. And so, because I think that's like a term that we don't really um, hear as much. Right. And well, I guess we do like a detective or like an inspector, but I just think it's a fierce title. Oh, absolutely. We have a fierce <laughs> job sometimes. So, the, does your RSPCA here in Australia have a really, because we have like the ASPCA back in America and I think there like is, or do you have a relation to the one in the United Kingdom? We we don't, we're not related as such, but we do similar roles. Um, so the SPCA in America, RSPCA, the Humane Society, we, we're very similar in many ways. And, and some of the societies over in the States also have law enforcement divisions such as ours, like animal cops, yes. I guess. Yeah. Yes, 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 yep. got it. I'm very lucky that all my cats are from different, they're all like rescue cats from like different um my two youngest are from the Philadelphia, like, chapter of, like, the PSPCA is what they call it. And all my other cats are rescues from different, like, little animal shelters. So I love an animal shelter. I love animals so much. So tell me about how you got involved in this line of work. Like, you were minding your own business one day. And what part of Australia are you from? Well, I'm from New South Wales. I was born you are? and bred. Yes, I was born and bred. I'm a first generation Australian. You are born and bred in Australia. Where's in your South family Wales. from? Um, I've got an Argentinian heritage. Oh, work. Yep. I love that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, and then you came to, and we might need to edit this out if I sound like a total idiot, but we're we're in New New South Wales. Yes, we yes. are. Yes. Okay. Great. Yes, we are. <sighs> Perfect. And there's seven states in it. For the Americans, we have who don't yeah, know? states and territories. So yeah, there's quite a few. Got it. Um, yeah, not as many as America though. Right. That's right. <laughs> so you are based here in New South Wales, and so your does your like area cover like Sydney and? Yeah. So I actually manage a, a number of inspectors. I'm the area manager for n- northern part of Sydney. It's quite a large area. And, I would um, imagine. Yeah, and we have six inspectors. Um, investigating cruelty complaints and and that sort of thing um, in the northern part of Sydney. Yeah. And so how has, I mean, obviously I think, you know, it's it's hard for Americans or, you know, anyone I think really to know uh, what the experience of being involved in bushfire coordination is like or what animal cruelty work would look like or really how those two would come together in the last year that, you know, Australia has experienced in um, New South Wales Right? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, um, I don't have my notes like right in front of me on my phone. So I was like, oh my God, I'm about to say it. I hope I don't say it wrong. But yeah, so New South Wales. So I mean, what has what has this been like? I mean, I know that the fire season for this particular bushfire started like much before like a typical bushfire season would start. It's um, unprecedented uh, that it starts so early. Um, they, we, we really started seeing fires start in September up north and they basically travelled down all the way down to the bottom of the state and then into other states. Um, you know, the amount of bushland homes that have been destroyed, it's, it's phenomenal and it's been unprecedented. We've never seen anything quite like it before um, and it's following a th- a quite a long drought, a quite a severe drought and so... It just makes things so much worse when everything's so dry and things burn very quickly. Um, and there's, for, unfortunately for the animals and for people, they didn't really get 
much of notice to get out. And so we've we've had a lot of a lot of devastation, a lot of loss of life. So it wasn't just that it was like, you know, because I do think I've, I've never heard of numbers that came out of a of a fire like this fire in terms of loss of life for animals. I mean, I remember before I came to Australia for the tour, we were hearing numbers like half a million animals, which is just a unfathomable, unfathomable amount of animals to think about. Yeah. So as RSPC inspectors, we're not um, we have concerns for all animals, regardless of what kind they are. So both wildlife, stock animals, pet animals, all animals, right? Um, so there is a estimated guess, and I guess it is going to take quite a long time of surveys to work out exactly how many animals are lost. But there is a very conservative guess guess of one billion animals may have lost may have lost their lives um, in this fire season. Um, but the inspectors have also been involved in our stock animals, cattle, sheep, and those kind of animals, horses that have also been fire affected, and it's been quite devastating. So if someone lives in like the Northern Hemisphere, your summer usually starts, which I think, you know, in California, our, our typical fire season is like more associated with like the spring and summer, correct? And so I think typically, just to give someone an idea that isn't familiar with fire season in Australia, your typical fire season would start in like what, like December? Yeah, that's right. When it starts getting really hot, when we start and get temperatures exceeding the 30s um, with hot westerly winds from the desert, yeah. as we know, um, Australia is a huge continent, but majority very arid. And we get those westerly winds and they're very strong. Um, that's when we get these sort of high fire danger days. And um, and we have different scales of fire danger and extreme or catastrophic um, events. And we had a number of catastrophic events um, in New South Wales alone, and that, you know, that created this fire season, but it did start very early. So normally we're looking at December, January, maybe February, but for it to start in September, um, that's, it's, yeah, it's been a hard road. And the RSPCA is a nonprofit. So it's a charity that it's like, it's not like it's like funded by the government or funded by like, you know, taxpayers. It's like just funded by contributions of people. Absolutely. We get um, less than 2% or about 2% funding from the government um, and, all the rest of our operations um, are due to our generous donors. And so when a fire season is extended like that by multiple months, I would imagine that your resources are like more strained and it makes it more difficult to keep up with the amount of animals in need, people in need to help their animals when you're already stretched with like a longer fire season. Absolutely. Um, We were already stretched in New South Wales due to the, the drought um, our regional offices have been really struggling with the amount of work um, due to the drought. Um, obviously, that affects stock animals. There's a lot of very thin-looking animals out in the regions um, due to lack of food. Um, and then there's a fire season that comes along and then there's that added pressure of having to then be concerned about wildlife and stock animals and people's houses burning and all the things that come with fires um, as it added extra. So just random other cue, how long have you been doing, how long have you been in this line of work? So I've worked for the RSPCA since, um, well, 1998, (laughs) so a long time. Um, I've been an inspector for six years, but before that I worked... um, in, as a veterinary nurse. So you've been like you've been speaking to these things and understanding the forces at play especially for Australia spe- specifically for a long time. And and the reason that I say that is because it seems like the relationship between the environment and then really anything that we have any sector of people that are in service have to the how they have to approach their job is becoming more severe due to the environment in so many ways that it seems like when I talk to people, they wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Like in 1998, I'm wondering if like, if you would have known to say like, oh, we're seeing a lot of like thinner animals around because it's like there's a drought. It's like, it just seems like things are getting worse. And there's like effects that people are seeing that like, so instead of me answering a question, I'll ask you one. Are you thinking, are things affecting you and affecting your job now more in an environmental or climate change sort of way that you maybe weren't aware of when you first got into this industry or first got into this job? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we, Australia's used to having fires and we're used to having droughts. That is a thing for Australia. Um, But this is a very long drought. It's prolonged. Um, New South Wales has had quite a lot of water in the last couple of weeks 
but it's only been on the coastline. It's not really reached, um, you know, the, the areas of Australia where they're most drought affected. Um, there's been very little rainfall there. So it's the drought hasn't broken and, you know, whether it's climate change or whether it's Australia's weather pattern, um, it doesn't really change the fact that we are really struggling with what's going on with the weather at the moment. 100%. So basically, the drought's been going on for years leading up to September. And when you're dealing with something like a drought and you're an inspector for the RSPCA, like what I mean, I guess even before the drought, like what are the aspects that, because I got to see your amazing video about kind of like what makes your job a good day and what makes your job a difficult day. Yeah. And just for anyone who hasn't gotten to see that, like what, it's a very multifaceted thing that your day could be. It's a million different things. It absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why I love my job. It's sometimes a bit strange to say that because we are investigating animal cruelty complaints and that comes... With, with, with problems, we've, we're faced with um, aggressive animals, we're faced with sometimes um, unhappy or aggressive people. It can be dangerous, it can be stressful, but every day is different. Um, every day brings a new set of challenges and it just, you know, and it, it is very rewarding um, job as well. So, pri- so you coordinate like all of like North Sydney and then due to the bushfires, did you end up having to be involved in something that's like more rural, whereas you would be maybe a little bit more urban typically? Yeah. So I was actually sent down. So if I'm not sure if you know, but on New Year's Eve, um, we had some really catastrophic fire events down in the south of um, New South Wales. And um, there was huge fires that came through very, very quickly. And there was very little notice given or ability for people to escape. Um, so I was sent down on very short notice and I spent um, a week down the south coast, uh, about 11 different um, town centres that I went to. Um, and um, there was a combination of doing animal warfare checks to ensure that, say, stock animals that may have been effect- fire affected were okay, checking in on farmers, checking in on people in the towns to see if they needed any help from the RSPCA, um, and then also checking on wildlife and doing some wildlife jobs and, you know, trying to rescue burnt animals and getting them to veterinary treatment. Um, And so, you know, I did come across quite a lot of devastation. It's really hard to explain what it's like driving for like three hours through the bush and it's just burnt. And it's not normal, like normal bushfire burnt, which is what we commonly seen in Australia, where there's still some sort of leaves on the trees and that sort of thing. We're talking about acres and acres and acres of black toothpicks it looked like I was in another like on another planet that's all I can explain especially when I got down to Perico very small town down the south coast um that had just been obliterated um and the fires actually burnt there twice and I understand that I don't think a single house has survived in that town and so how do you when you approach a, a scene like that, do does everyone just get out of their cars and search for animals? Is it about delivering food? It was about everything, really. We were sort of we were. It was a combined effort, but we were out there with food for dogs, food for cats, horses, and also wildlife. So we were leaving um, food drops. So we we're working with local wi- um, wildlife carers um, and loading them up with. Um, food for the animals that did survive the fire. Um, the, the problem with these fires is they were so fast moving um, that the majority of Australian wildlife aren't very fast moving animals. So if mm-hmm. you think about our lizards and our snakes and our tree dwelling animals like our koalas and our possums, they didn't really have much of a chance to get out. The animals that could get out were our macropods, our wallabies, our kangaroos, those sort of animals. Unfortunately, um, if they did survive the initial fire, they would then go back to their habitats that were still smouldering because our fires can then burn for two weeks underground so they could fall into a fire pit, so to speak, and burn themselves again. And if they survived that, then they found themselves with nothing to eat or drink. So it's actually it's, it is such a domino effect with these fires and the, and the weather pattern that we're having. So 
When you get there, is there different people within your team that deal with like domestic animals versus like wildlife or like like or like poisonous snakes or like lizards like or does is it kind of whoever finds whatever deals with what they find as they find it? Oh, we had we've had lots of teams go out. So we've um we've visited um 80 townships so far um and delivering goods and supplies, veterinarians, nurses, um Animal handlers have been attending those townships. Um, as far as wildlife, it's mostly veterinarians and RSPC inspectors that are um, are going out um, because it, it is a little bit more difficult catching snakes or catching kangaroos or, or wombats like I've done that have been fire affected. So, yeah. You're having to catch wombats? I did. I did catch a wombat. Aren't they yes. really? I, I think I held a like one and a half year old wombat at this place. But, like, they were saying how, like, you know, you really can only handle them from, like, zero to two because, like, once they go through puberty, like, they're mad as hell. Yeah. Basically. Well, I, it, was, it was caught with a dart. So as uh, an inspector, I, I have the ability to dart animals. But a wombat's like a big-ass aggressive guinea pig with some teeth that'll, like, take your wrist off. Like, yes. it could, like, bite <laughs> your hand off, couldn't it? Well, they have very small mouths, but I agree they're aggressive and they're very big. But it could really just, like... Bite the shit out of you. So you got to dart that little baby thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's less stressful for them as well. Okay, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Getting Curious and Tanya right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So you're doing your day-to-day coordination in December. It's New Year's. This fire happens and you go down and that's kind of what starts off this like tour of townships. And you said that you visited 80 Oh, RSPCA in New South Wales has visited 80. Oh, yeah, the, it, yes. I visited 11 right. in just one week. So I, I've, my brain's just been thinking this several times, and I I don't – did they ever – was it just fires from other places? Was it like a fireworks thing because it was New Year's Eve? Did, is anyone even like asking how the fire started right now, or is that like just – like did you ever wonder that? Like how did this start? There was – you know, there, there's always the concerns that there are um, – people lighting fires on purpose or accidental fires with people perhaps throwing a lit cigarette out the window because it's so dry and because it hadn't rained for so long it doesn't take much but we can get spontaneous fires and Australian bushland is in some ways designed to have fires um, to regenerate but these aren't the kind of fires that it needs these are the kind of fires that obliterate trees and animals and and don't leave anything behind um so yeah it's, it's difficult to say how they started I think uh, the one near my house uh, I was living in a bushfire zone for months um that was started by a lightning strike uh, so you your family has been affected by this set of bushfires yes well we lived on the edge of the fire and I spent months um watching the fire from my back window, coming home to complete darkness at three o'clock in the afternoon, my kid calling me on the phone at home saying, mummy, it's raining ash at home. When are you going to get home? So it's it has been a very stressful time. Yeah. So as someone who's living with that reality in their backyard, how did your family, like, did you have like bags ready to go if you needed to for those months? Yes, we were packed a number of times. We sent our children to the grandparents. My husband's with the rural fire service as well. So sometimes he was out with the fires and I was sitting at home watching through the window, you know. So yeah, it was intense a few months. I I actually spent a number of weeks where we didn't see the the sun. All we could see was this weird orange circle in the sky because it was so... And that was for weeks. Yeah. I mean, in America, the way the coverage was, you would have thought that it was like a like a couple days. Oh, it, no. and, and those pictures were so impactful of like, you know, like families like going into the ocean and like like when the fire was like approaching like those coastlines. But it it does seem like the coverage got to, you know, a certain point. And then it like you just don't hear those personal stories of like how really the scope of what that experience was. Yeah, it's incredible. There's there's been so many stories um I you know and I came across so many people that they just want to tell you their stories when you go and visit these townships um one of one of the places I went to um was close to a very small township on on the south coast called Mogo it, it was a township just 
slightly outside of Mogo. And we got a call about um, a house that had burnt to the ground um, and the animals were in need of help. So we rushed out there and we met with the family and they were decided to, so they wouldn't have to leave their animals behind. They had four horses and a huge number of dogs that were all their pets or rescue dogs. And they were living out of tents because the house had burnt to the ground and they were living out of tents. They didn't have toilets. They didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. You know, it was really devastating and they were staying with their animals. Um, their only water source was their, um, they had a they had a water source but it was full of ash. That was another major problem for these towns that, you know, the ash then affected the very little water that's left um, and they they were having to take their horses to drink that water knowing that it wasn't good but they had no other option in that short term. And um, and then the stories about how they got out and got all their dogs out, you know, their 17-year-old daughter was at, ho- at home on their own when the fires came through and she jumped on her horse and rode her horse out. Uh. <laughs> So yeah. what are the states of these towns now? Like, I mean, are the, I mean, the fires aren't, I mean, how are we healing? How are the, how are these people coming back now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really long process, um, which is sometimes hard to grasp. You know, we've lost about 5.3 million hectares of bushland just in New South Wales. Um, so, you know, there's just been... So much loss. There's 3,000 homes that have been lost. Um, and New South Wales alone or all of Australia? Across Australia. That's, I mean, either way, it's a incredible amount of loss of, I mean, I I lost uh, my like beautiful little baby cat unexpectedly last year. And I mean, losing my stuff, I feel like is... I mean, it would be dev because I like my stuff, but nothing was worse is worse than like losing an animal, like e- whether they're fourteen and like it's like my first cat like had cancer and like you know it's like natural causes. The second time was like a freak accident, like the most devastating thing ever. But going through a natural disaster like that and then losing your pet, or you know, it, like you getting out and not having your pet get out, is I I, I can't think of a worse thing. Yeah, we 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 came across a lady who the fires came through, she couldn't get out quick enough, so she got in her dam with her dog and put her um fire blanket over her head and sat in that dam for hours waiting for the fire to go over. And when she came out, all of her horses had perished in the fires. I can't imagine how devastating that would be. Um horses are just like big dogs, they you know, like people's pets. Um but there's been such loss of life, but in in saying that, there's been some amazing, miraculous stories of survival. Um, one of our inspectors was winched in by helicopter to go and assist some animals that had been um, fire affected. They had survived the fire, but the owner couldn't get back to the house. That you know, they got separated by the fire, and we got winched in to be able to give those animals. What's winched that in mean? Oh, so th- with a helicopter, got dropped down onto the property with a helicopter to then feed them water his dogs because he couldn't oh. get back because he'd been separated by fire. So while there's been so much devastation, there's been some amazing stories How of survival. How did they get back together? Oh, eventually the roads were cleared and he oh. could get through. But when there's huge fires, um, the trees burn for days and they can actually fall on people and people are killed after the fact because the trees would literally just fall on cars or fall on people. What if someone lost their house and the pets survived, but part of the house was destroyed? And so like, was there any things where like, you know, like a, like a black Adler, like some like big ass scary animal survived and then was like trying to like chase the dog or something. Like I worry about my cats getting like chased or like if I was in Australia, like what happened if your cat couldn't hide from a fucking, from a snake? We can cuss on here. I remember. So it's fine. But yeah. That's right. Um, look, we do have quite large snakes. Um, I've not heard any stories about snakes attacking cats. but After the fire, so like my the biggest fires. fear is. No, but we did have <laughs> something that, um, that sometimes we forget is that when these fires go through these properties, they lose their fence lines. So they have, they've not only lost their house and they may have lost their pets, but they've actually lost the ability to keep their pets safe after the fact. Right. So, you know, we've been helping with, um, with that with that aspect um we have been setting up temporary pens um for people so that 
they can keep their dogs, for example, safe. Um, you know, people that are living out of their tents and that sort of thing, providing shelter for their animals, for their dogs, so they're not in the baking sun. Is that stuff still going on? Like, are, are people, are, at this point, are people reunited with their animals and at least like in their temporary housing while their homes are being rebuilt and like insurance is dealing with all of that? Or are people still living out in their tents? Like, are we still helping animals? There, like- we The RSPCA certainly is. We are out all week, every week, and have been for for months now. Um, This weekend alone we'll be at two different places, but we're always out trying to help people. Um, As far as whether people have been able to go into their temporary accommodation while their houses are being rebuilt, not everybody. You know, we are talking about a huge amount of houses that have been burnt and I, I believe that there are still people and also wanting to stay on their property. Um, with their animals and so they are living in a caravan perhaps on their property. I think that we got to um, interview an incredible firefighter who has been working on bushfire coordination responses in in small communities and or rural, rural communities not small communities but I just I think that your your experience of this fire and your vantage point on it gives you such a unique insight into the way that this a natural disaster would impact all these various ways in your life that you wouldn't think about, whether it's being separated from your animals or separated from medication, having your houses burned down. Like what, like what did people do like in terms of like planning that you noticed that worked? Having in Australia, one of the most important things is having a good evacuation plan. You need to know exactly what you're going to do depending on how much time you have. If you're in the middle of a bushfire season and you are close to bushfires, you need to have things prepared, things that are really important to you, you know, your passport, your driver's licence, your birth certificate, things that are hard to replace and have those packed away. And as well, making sure that you have provisions for your animals. You know, if you have eight dogs and you've only got one car, you need to start having a think about how you're going to move those animals to safety on short notice. That's right. You might need to, you know, maybe call friends and see what what plans you can put in place in order to, um, in order to get out in time and safely. I think about because I mean, also like bushfires aren't. I mean, there's also just like house fires, like yes. just getting out of like your house with your animals. So like, is it like about having like a bag that you can throw your cat in to just run like hell, like? Yeah, well, I mean, a cat bag perhaps made for made for cats yeah, yeah, or a cat I mean. basket. Yeah. yeah, so having those things in place, knowing what you're going to do, where you're going to go, how you're going to execute the plan, depending on where you live. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Tanya after the break. So at this point in the recovery, we have, there are still people that are like, there's still a lot of recovery happening, still a lot of people, animals in need and that are going through this recovery process. Absolutely. So, excuse me. So I guess, you know, including the bushfires, but, you know, more prior to that and just the general work of what RSPCA does um, and animal welfare as, you know, a service and as like a career path. What, what do those, what do those days entail? Well, it could be anything. Like I said before, it's one of those, as an RSPCA inspector, it's one of those things that you just never know what the day is going to bring. Um, we have a very busy job. There's not many of us. So the state of New South Wales is quite big. Um, we have a lot of people that live in this state, but we we have about 37 inspectors um, in this state. Um, so it is a tough job. We investigate and um, we've received 16,000 cruelty complaints in the last 12 months. So that's a lot of... a, lot, a lot of a day. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and and out of that, there's prosecutions, there's court time, um, and it can get really busy. Um, so that's what our day mostly is. But you could be, you know, have a handful of jobs knowing that you're going to go here, here, and here, and there's all these things you're going to do. And then all of a sudden you get a call about some horrendous accident that, you know, that's happened or an animal stuck that needs to to be rescued and and that'll take the rest of your day. And that's the beauty about our jobs. You just never know what's going to happen. 
So when it comes to like criminality and like a complaint about animal cruelty, like if you guys have it, like, do you have to, how do you work with the police to like, like, do you arrest their ass or like what, how did, how does that work? So um, as our SPC inspectors in New South Wales, we are officers under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. And police officers are also officers under the same act. Um, but we have the power to enter land. We have the power to seize an animal, to take that animal into our care. Um, and we also have the power of arrest. So while we do engage with the police often with perhaps uh, persons of interest that might be aggressive or known to be aggressive or situations that might be dangerous, we also have quite strong powers in New South Wales as inspectors. So really we don't even need them, honey, because like we're like you're getting it together like with your like with the team. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, again, there is very little government funding and we do rely on charitable donations to keep us doing what we do. But we do have, um, we have been given that, that, that power that is so important to us to be able to enter someone's land to have a look at their animal and assess whether that animal needs extra care or not. So <clears throat> what do, what will people kind of call in for? Like, like I think so many of us are like on our phones, we're listening to music, like we're just not really being vigilant to, you know, things that we're seeing and, it, you know, we're just not really paying attention. And so I think, you know, we often will hear those stories about like how someone's like been abducted and they'll like leave like the note to like someone at the bank or like the McDonald's. And they'll be like, help me, like call like 911 or whatever. But I think there's, I would assume that it's similar stories like that to people seeing something or observing something that doesn't feel right. And that's how, is that true? Yeah. So people can call or email um, cruelty reports and then inspectors will follow up with their report um, and basically investigate the allegation that's been put to us. Um, so the reports can be anything from a dog being locked um, in a hot car to um, a, an emaciated um, horse um, or, it, you know, it could be an animal that's been left without food and water for a long period of time. There's a menagerie of things um, that are reported to us and we investigate every single cruelty complaint that comes to us um, and then follow through with it to see whether an offence has occurred or not. Is there ever, I mean, it probably I would imagine is usually a pretty high rate of there was something wrong, right? Well, yes and no. Um, we do have busy seasons. Uh, summer is a busy season in animal warfare um, because of the heat. More people are out, more people are doing things, so they're seeing the dog in the park that's done, that, that looks unwell or they're driving you know, oh, maybe sometimes the dog just has like cancer or something. That's, it's like it wasn't emaciated, just like my dog's got cancer and sick, like leave me alone or that's whatever. That's right. So they're out and they're seeing things. Um, we have fireworks, we have thunderstorms. That all causes um, some animals to freak out and run on the roads and get, get hit by cars and that sort of thing. But what we find is that people have different perceptions of what is okay mm. with animals. People's perceptions change depending on where they live. So some people think that animals should be allowed inside all the time and then other people um, prefer their dogs outside. And it's it gets a little bit difficult when there's people's perception of what is okay and isn't okay. So yeah. that's where we get a little bit of grey area. And sometimes, How does that fall? Well, well, sometimes we get reports that, um, you know, that aren't offences, that to one person it, it's a terrible thing that you know, that that dog's never allowed inside the like house. Like if someone let their cat out, I'd probably go like steal the cat and be like, you weren't being a very responsible cat parent because you let your cat outside and like a wolf's going to get it. And so I stole it. And they'd be like, you stole my cat. Then I'd be like, your fucking cat was going to die. You were letting it outside. So I stole it. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Well, I have very strong feelings animals. around like cats <laughs> like going outside. Do you know, I read this article, maybe it's false, but I'm pretty sure it's correct, that like outside cats have an average life expectancy of only four years because they get like run over by cars, like eaten by animals, like other animals. Ugh. I'm, like, obsessed with my cats. I really need them all to be, like, 20. That's my goal. I want, like, four 20-year-old cats. Well, in Australia, cats, unfortunately, do compete um, with our native animals. So we do have a lot of small ground-dwelling animals like um, lizards and that sort of thing, or even tree-dwelling animals like possums that, that unfortunately do get attacked by, by cats. Oh, they do? They can't help it. They're just playing. 
Yes, I guess so you could see it that way. Oh my god, do you um, low the cat? Because did they get oh introduced no. to? Our, but did they get like introduced to Australia? So they're like fucking up the animals, sort of a thing. We do have cats competing with native animals, and that that is that is a concern for for the general population. So wouldn't the RSPCA like love cat parents like me who like don't let their cats outside? Keeping your cat indoors, especially at night, is incredibly important. It's for their safety. And it's also for the safety of native animals, right? Whereas I'm obviously way more concerned about uh, the cat safety because, like, lizards really scare me. So do snakes. I'm, like, such a sucker for cats. I just love them so much. They're great animals. They're so cute. Do you have pets? Yes, I do. You do? What do you have? Well, I can't have cats because one of my children's severely allergic. Oh, no. found that out the hard way. Um I bought some foster kittens home and he was really allergic. Oh, no. But I have two dogs. Oh, cute. And yeah. I'm so glad that everyone got through the fire season. Is, did the fires go away from your house now? Yes. So that fire has 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 been put out um, and the majority of the fires in New South Wales are now under control, which is really good to see. But under control doesn't mean out. No, it doesn't. No, not at all. Um, we did have quite heavy rain recently and we did have flooding in Sydney. It was quite heavy flooding in some areas um, and that assisted in putting some of the fires out in the Sydney area. But, yes, not all the fires are out. But not like more inland. Yes. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, so then I guess my next question. So for people that like, obviously you see a lot of like very – upsetting things that I think a normal, you know, average person would be like very much like, huh. But I guess my question is like, what would you say to encourage people to get into this line of work? Because, you know, you said there's like not that many of you in New South Wales. And I would imagine that most, you know, animal welfare organizations could always use more people. Um, But as far as like more than being a volunteer, like for someone who makes it their life's work, what has been like the most fulfilling and most fulfilling and best aspect of it and like what you think would make more people want to get into the fold? Uh, It's it's having that um, compassion for animals um, and really wanting, especially in animal welfare, is giving animals a second chance of life, a second chance of of having a home. Um, Really for me it was you know, as an inspector anyways, removing an animal from a terrible situation and then following that animal through and they're getting a, they go to a new home, they're in a loving home, you know, they're being fed properly, they're being looked after when they need veterinary treatment, they're getting it. And it's that, that is what keeps me going as an inspector and makes my job so rewarding. And I think for a lot of people that work in animal welfare, it really at the end of the day is changing the life of an animal. Oh my God, that brought, yes. And then do you ever get things where it's like you go to someone's house and you're like, um, you're not supposed to be raising like a dingo or like you're not supposed to have kangaroos in here. Is it, do you ever get those things like where people are like raising like an exotic animal or something like they shouldn't have in their house or it's like too big for their house or something? I've never come across an exotic animal that they shouldn't have. That's never happened to me as an inspector. Um, But certainly we do come across people that may be overwhelmed, that may have one too many animals, you know, those things, those things can be problematic. Um, you know, getting a border collie or, you know, a cattle dog and then, you know, going into a one bedroom unit in the city, that can be an issue um, for that animal and, and the people. So we do come across those sort of things. Yes. Um, have you ever like, do you ever, did you guys have the show Hoarders in Australia? We did. I we I do believe that we've had a number of of shows about hoarding. There yes. was one in America called Hoarder, and there was this one season finale where this man was his wife died, and they were obsessed with like their pet rat, and then he like, honey, like the loss of his wife just like put propelled him into this like rat hoarding obsession, and he literally had like thousands and thousands of rats. Have you ever run into like an animal hoarding situation? All of the time. So that is that the biggest thing that happens? That is one of our major problems, yes. So what happens when that happens? Well, it's tricky because um not so much the gory details, because like I'll literally have a oh, nervous no, breakdown, but like does the no. person just need do you like do you refer the person to like a police and a therapist? Like what's going on with them? Well, obviously they they've got a mental health situation going on, so 
you know, we do try to engage with um, mental health teams in the area, um, but also then we need to look at what's going on for the animals because quite often in these hoarding situations, the, the person isn't capable of providing adequate care to so many animals. It's expensive, it's difficult. You know, if you've got a house with, you know, 60 cats. Fuck, is that how many there are? It's happened, yes, absolutely. So, you know, it, it's almost impossible to know which one's sick. You know, you see. How do you measure your nervous system when you go into a situation like that? Like, aren't you, like, don't you get pissed? I personally operate in a way that I see the problem and I'm there to resolve the issue in whatever means necessary. And I'm very methodical about that. So I'm not getting involved in the emotional side of it. I'm like, I have a job to do. I'm here to do something. I'm going to remove these cats or whatever it might be that I'm doing. What if the person is going berserk as you're coming into the situation? That's usually when we would engage the police. Um, And certainly um, we would have intel about this person beforehand. So we wouldn't go in there usually blind. I mean, it has happened that we've just gone to knock on a door about a sick animal and then you realise that they don't just have one, that they've got many. Um, That does happen to us. Um, But generally speaking, we have intelligence about a person that has way too many animals, whatever those animals might be. Uh, Wow. So and then at that point, once you're in and... I was interrupting you so much because I just couldn't handle it. But so you get in the methodical situation. Does that have to do with like getting the animals to vets? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the time when we're going to these large um, hoarding situations, we do take veterinarians with us. so They can assess the environment um, and every every animal if possible. Um, and we're very methodical so that we are catalog- cataloging every animal that comes that that's going to come into our care that we're removing, we're photographing every animal, we're recording every animal, they go into a cage, they go into an ambulance, and then you proceed to the next one. And that's and everybody has a task and there's usually a number of inspectors involved in those kind of operations. And then like once you get all the animals out, is it like then if the owner got like, you know, had charges as a result of it or like, so like I mean, I, I feel like the houses are probably like uninhabitable or like all messed up, aren't they? They can be. We've had to call hazmat to a number of um, inspections that we've had um, and they will measure the ammonia in the air and ensure that it's actually safe for us to work in. Because if you can imagine some of these houses, there are piles and piles of animal feces all over the kitchen benches and that sort of thing. And that can create a lot of ammonia if there's no windows open, which quite often um, in hoarding situations, everything's closed up. Okay. So we don't have super much time left, but I want to go back to the bushfire, bushfires for a a moment. Um, So I've also noticed as far as myself as an interviewer, when I get uncomfortable, I really steer the bus away and I get like really nervous about talking about things. I'm like, Oh my God, it's so sad. So, I have a lot of work to do as an interviewer, just noticing that about myself after these 40 minutes. But so when you were talking about like, you know, the snakes, lizards, koalas, like the animals that couldn't get out as quickly, but then other animals that could, I would imagine though that when you're going through the cities and and the recovery efforts are happening, that you would come across all sorts of different animals, like in general. Like some of the ones that were slower movers probably still survived sometimes, right? Yes, it it depends. And, and fires can be so strange and they can really just pick certain areas and then not pick others. So you'd be driving through and it'd be burnt and you're driving through hours of burnt bush and then all of a sudden there's just like this little green patch that hasn't been burnt. And you're like, why didn't that get burnt? So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to predict fire movement. And so, yes, some animals have been able to escape or have survived. The fire has gone around them, but then there's so much habitat loss. So their feet, their food is gone, their houses are gone if they live in trees. And and so it's been, yeah, it's been really rough for, for, for Australian wildlife this season. So where do like the zoologists and like environmentalists and like, is, is, I mean, are we even talking about that yet? Like, are, like, have there been species lost? Have there been species really greatly affected? Are those bigger 
surface level conversations even having yet? Or is it still about like helping the people and like, yeah. Yeah. So my understanding is in New South Wales, we have about a thousand endangered species of animals and plants. That was before the fires. We're really not sure yet, and it's going to take a long time of surveys um, to be able to work out whether those endangered animals have now become critically endangered or they're extinct, and whether some of the more common animals that we see have maybe reduced in populations in some areas where they are then becoming um, possibly endangered. That's going to take a while to work out. You know, we're talking about areas that are still smouldering. You can't enter. Um, you can't drive through, you can't walk through because it's dangerous. Are you seeing like any reports of like animals where they haven't been before? Or, like, like whether it's kangaroos, snake, like just anim- people finding animals where they haven't found them before? Absolutely. I was actually on holidays at a um, caravan park and there was a snake right in the middle, like a quite large python just slithering in the middle of the crowd, like looking for somewhere to escape and that you know and this was in a fire fire area so the place had burnt around months before and now the caravan park had reopened and they'd survived the fire and this snake is clearly outside of its area because everything around it's been burnt so all the food that it would normally be eating is is now gone so it's now having to it's pushing it's getting pushed into areas where it normally wouldn't be so there's this snake and it's slithering around and it's trying to get away from people and all the kids are obviously inquisitive like mom there's a snake so i went out to my truck even though i was on holidays and i grabbed my snake bag and i put it in my snake bag and i took it out to safety but so yes. you know how to do that yeah <laughs> so what so what, what what happened so you so you go to the car you get the snake bag it's got like a hook in it so i have a snake bag and a jigger so the jigger is like this long stick with a crooked end um, and that sort of picks up the snake and then I have a bag with a sort of it's got a an opening at the end and I sort of guided the snake into the bag. Did you pick it up by the back of the head after you got the jiggler on it or whatever? No so I used the jigger sort of a third of the way up its body to sort of just guide it into the bag and it sort of just they just fell into the bag. Was it kind of tired from just like the all the people and being probably, so Probably. It you know, it wasn't moving very fast. Um and yeah, I got it. It was yeah. I and then where did you the take bag. them to? So I just went very locally. It's important to ensure that you try to release animals as close as you can to where they were found. Is that just so that the, it's like orientated? Yeah, and it's their territory and food sources and all that sort of thing. There's no point in getting that snake that's used to living by a river and taking it 20 kilometers inland. Right. So um, I then found a safe place. It was still green. There'd still be food and released it to safety. Ah, uh, yay. <laughs> what? And then, so I guess I thought originally that like you would need like, what if it was like a black adder or something really poisonous ass one? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would have been as comfortable with a poisonous snake, I have to say. We do have a number of poisonous snakes in Australia. So yes, I, that would probably... If there was that, would you just like, is there someone who is, as Elsa at the RSPCA, who's like a venomous snake expert or something? We don't we don't have anyone that I know of at the RSPCA in Sydney that's a venomous snake expert, but there are people that you can call, certainly... Um, most of the fire brigades will deal with snake uh. catching as well. Um, I have re- I have re- also removed a snake out of my swimming pool. So snakes are not an uncommon thing in Australia. Not loving that. <laughs> um, so, wow. So, and then how can people get involved that are listening, not in Australia, that would love to help and, and be able to... I, I, I read this article that was like, stop sending the koalas fucking mittens like they don't need the mittens like give us your cold hard cash like what how can people help absolutely donations um certainly for people um that aren't living in australia or in new south wales are, are the easiest way to to help us do the work that we do um yeah so just getting online um for people overseas if people living in australia they can do it online or they can call us as well um but online is certainly an easy option and but people are like needing donations right now, so donate to the RSPCA is the point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, Tanny, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that you want people to know that we didn't touch on that like we needed to before we get going and, and let people go on with their work days or whatever? It doesn't have to be anything you have to look up. Just anything that strikes out at your soul that we like that you maybe wanted to mention that we didn't get around to. Um, 
I guess the message, you know, for the average pet owner is, you know, look after your pets if you can, um, dissect your pets so that they, you know, stops the breeding cycle. As we know, I'm sure in the States as well, there is an overabundance of animals. There are shelters full of animals waiting for homes. We don't need to be actively breeding um, animals for people. There, there's so many animals waiting. If you're looking for an animal, please don't shop. Please adopt. Go to your local shelter. Go to your pound and give an animal a second chance of life. I could not agree more. Last thing, I know that I said that that was the last question, but and this is also like really non sequitur, but I just have to ask, I would be remiss if I didn't. What's it like growing up in a country where it's summer during Christmas? You know, because for us, it's like, it snows during Christmas and you just, you think about white Christmas, honey, you think about like, it's, you know, you bundle up and stuff. Like, and like New Year's, it's cold as shit. It's it's, it's winter in America. So you're from Australia. What was it like? It's amazing. It's our favorite time of the year for Australians. I I can't imagine having New Year's or Christmas and not be going to the beach or jumping in my pool or, you know, being outdoors. It, it's it's an Australian thing. We, we wouldn't know any other way. So I didn't mean to assume that you... So your family does celebrate Christmas though? Of course, yes. Okay, so... Okay, so let's just talk about this just a little bit more before we leave. This is it, obviously it's, it's about animals and animal welfare, but you grew up in a country where it was, it was pool time in the summer. Absolutely. So, what do you guys have for Christmas dinner? Oh well, um, barbecues normally. Yeah, I mean, yes, there's some families. It's, is it like Christmas stuffing? Is it? Yeah, you, you, there are some families. Um, but it's but, more of like barbecuey food, yeah, like a corn barbe- on the cob situation. Yeah, or prawns on the barbecue and shrimp on the barbie. That's it. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, so you just, when you think Christmas, you just so think summer. Absolutely. Salads and cocktails and, yeah, all that sort of fun stuff, you know, cold beers and, you know, it's just all about summer and all about being outdoors and, yeah. Ah, love Australia. Thank you so much for your time. You're amazing. Everyone, donate to to RSPCA. Tanya, thank you so much for your time and for all of your incredible work. Um, I look up to you so much and I hope that... You inspired uh, in this episode other people to get into this line of work. I just think it's incredible. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benes. My guest this week was Tanya Dominguez. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of wherever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe, honey. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.